Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Discovery Debrief, a podcast that dives headfirst into the proverbial deep end of the latest trek into the final frontier, Star Trek Discovery. I'm co-host Chris Clow, and in this episode, unfortunately, I'm going solo. On the day I'm recording this, we did plan on beginning a new series of episodes, which would be delving into each of our insightful panelists' favorite single episodes of Star Trek. It's no easy task, picking a single story, since as of this recording and across the franchise's nearly 52 years of history, there are a grand total of 731 television episodes in 31 seasons across 7 different TV series, not to mention 13 feature films with both a new season of TV in current production, as well as two alleged movies being in development. That's a lot of Star Trek. But our panelists are absolutely up to the task. I'm happy to say that each of our choices have all fallen into a different series, so that succession of four episodes will have quite a variation in subject matter. We're really looking forward to bringing them all to you. Since we're a couple of weeks away from sitting down to record that first one, though, I didn't want to go too long without having a new episode for those of you out there who could use a little more Star Trek in your lives. I mean, can't we all? So because this week also falls on this year's Electronics Entertainment Expo, or E3, I've taken it upon myself to offer a look back at Star Trek's forays into the interactive medium of video games, and also offer a review of a pretty recent Trek gaming experience that really only became possible on the front of commercially available home video gaming hardware within the last few years. To that end, I'm going to be conducting an analysis akin to an episode of my other podcast, Comics on Consoles, which devotes itself to the intersection of comic book characters into the video game medium. Check out the most recent episode, or issue, as I call it, that dives into 2008's Iron Man on the Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3 right now. So sit back, relax, and listen to this Discovery Debrief rundown of Star Trek's history in the interactive medium, along with a review of the latest video game in the franchise of The Final Frontier, Star Trek Bridge Crew, developed by Red Storm Entertainment and published by Ubisoft for PlayStation VR, the HTC Vive, and Oculus Rift. The very nature of the interactive realm of video games makes licensed Star Trek exploitations very natural for the medium, and the history of Star Trek gaming is filled with almost as many twists and turns as even the most turbulent episode of any Star Trek TV show. Since 1971, the infancy of the video game itself as we understand it in the modern age, there have been a staggering 93 different Star Trek video games in everything from arcades, early home computers, pretty much every home console ever manufactured, on up through mobile devices, and now commercially available virtual reality headsets. The futuristic space-based setting of Star Trek and its emphasis on advanced technology makes it a natural fit to be a part of video games, and consequently the franchise has enjoyed both the highest highs and the lowest lows in terms of critical acclaim and sales success. As a kid that came of age in the 1990s, my first memory of playing a Star Trek video game was on my family's original Nintendo Entertainment System. It was Star Trek 25th Anniversary, released in 1992, developed by Interplay, and published by Ultra Games.
It's not the most well-regarded Star Trek game ever made, but I still have quite a bit of fun with it. It basically sets itself up as a lost episode of the original series, and features a base of sorts on the Enterprise Bridge, a series of landing party missions you have to go on to find elements and parts to fix the ship, in addition to some pretty decent Zelda-esque puzzle solving, and even ship-based combat. To this day, I've never played the more well-loved PC version of the 25th anniversary game, the CD-ROM version of which actually includes full voice work from the entire original series cast, or its sequel, Judgment Rights. Outside of that early experience, I remember renting both Star Trek The Next Generation Futures Past and Star Trek Deep Space Nine Crossroads of Time on the Super Nintendo, but I haven't revisited them in the years since because I haven't exactly felt a compulsion to, either. Neither game was dripping with praise upon their respective releases, but they most definitely have their segments of passionate fans. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyagers of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. Another early Trek gaming highlight for me personally was 1995's Star Trek The Next Generation A Final Unity, a point-and-click adventure game developed by Spectrum Holobyte for the MS-DOS PC platform, A Final Unity featured the entire Next Generation cast reprising their roles for the game and featured a highly engaging plot that probably accounts for my first major foray into the realm of gaming on a PC. Taking place first on Stardate 47111.1, which would be between the events of Descent Part 2 and either Liaisons, one of only five TNG episodes with no Stardate given, or Interface in early Season 7, you start off in a tense diplomatic situation with a species known as the Garidians, whose primary major power ally in the galaxy is the Romulan Empire. This eventually leads the Enterprise to take aboard Garidian political asylum seekers, then to an experimental science station in danger of going critical, before warping to a planet to try and find a missing scientist and appraise a new planet's application for Federation membership, along with an attempt to repel a Romulan invasion of the Federation. It had a number of branching paths as well, and the choices you make in it feel like they have a legitimate sense of consequence, which would often cause my seven-year-old self to start again from the beginning if I failed to save someone or make the right diplomatic decision on a first go-around. It seemed so big, and perfectly emphasized the sense of danger, exploration, and diplomacy that any great TNG episode also offers up. It's a shame that it's a hell of a task to get it running on modern systems, because for those inclined to absorb a very authentic TNG video game adventure, it's hard to get better than a final Unity. I actually recently got it running again on my Windows 10 laptop, which wasn't the easiest thing to do, but I've thoroughly enjoyed picking it up and playing it once again. 
The lion's share of my memories with Star Trek gaming, though, actually center on entries published by Activision in the 3D era, who picked up the multi-platform license after Interplay came upon some hard times and parted with it. This may actually be something of a golden age of Star Trek gaming, though. While the franchise would begin losing popularity on film and television by around 2001, video games were a whole other story. The Trek games published by Activision started a streak of releases that, even today, are just a blast to play. Lock all weapons on that vessel. Fire. It was Star Trek that first got me into the real-time strategy genre, since the year 2000's Star Trek Armada told a very compelling story in addition to being just a solidly developed and really slick-looking game. Taking place sometime after the events of the Insurrection film, Armada unified the characters Jean-Luc Picard, Worf, Martok, and Sela, along with their original actors providing voice work, in a story that involved the Federation, Klingons, and Romulans having to unite in order to repel a new offensive by the Borg. In fact, in an early mission where you actually play as the Collective, you take over a Dominion cloning facility in order to create their leader in this effort. A clone of Captain Picard, assimilated to become the new Locutus of Borg. Captain, we are receiving a transmission from the Borg cube. On screen. If you are truly who you appear to be, you must know that I will not comply. You will comply. Your defensive capabilities are no match for us. Your culture will adapt to service ours. Resistance is and always has been futile. Other solid Activision games from this period include 1999's Star Trek Hidden Evil, a quasi-sequel to the events of the Insurrection movie, along with Deep Space Nine The Fallen, the Starfleet Command games, and the ground-based RTS game Away Team. There were also a series of full-motion video or FMV-based games like Star Trek Klingon and Star Trek Borg, which featured actors from the original films and shows reprising their roles in new adventures, oftentimes shot on the sets of the concurrently running TV shows. Borg, for instance, sees John Delancey reprising his role as Q to take your player character back in time to Wolf 359 to save his father who was killed there. While these games aren't readily available anymore, you can at least watch their stories in their entireties on sites like YouTube. They're pretty fun. In the year 2000, though, Activision teamed up with developer Raven Software to create, arguably, Star Trek's best game under Activision's purview. While Star Trek is most definitely an action-packed franchise, you wouldn't necessarily expect the series to spawn a memorable, or indeed stellar, first-person shooter game. While Voyager was still on the air, though, that's exactly what Raven Software turned in. My longtime, personally favorite game ever spawned from the final frontier. Star Trek Voyager Elite Force. On Stardate 48315.6, the USS Voyager was transported beyond our control, 70,000 light years across the galaxy to the Delta Quadrant. There, without aid from Starfleet, 
we began our 70-year journey home. In our numerous encounters, we came into contact with many dangerous and violent species. Having a limited crew with no chance of reinforcements, we determined that we needed a specialized team to handle the more dangerous situations. Tuvok, Voyager's chief of security, assembled an elite force of security personnel named the Hazard Team. Ensign Monroe is second in command of this uniquely trained team. Equipped with Seven of Nine's experimental anti-Borg weapon, the Infinity Modulator, the Hazard Team has beamed to a Borg cube on a dangerous mission. However, the team was quickly overwhelmed, and the I-Mod is now in the hands of the Borg. Separated from the rest, Monroe is attempting to rescue the team. Featuring voice work from the entire cast of the Voyager TV show, Elite Force saw the ship captured in a starship graveyard in the Delta Quadrant, blanketed with a severe dampening field, paralyzing the ship and requiring Security Chief Lieutenant Tuvok to deploy his highly trained tactical away unit, the Hazard Team, in an effort to try and find those responsible for trapping Voyager and a whole host of other ships and species, and escape to continue their journey back to Earth. Had you followed standard Hazard Team procedures, you may have survived the simulation and achieved your mission objectives. Yes, sir. Procedure. Speak freely, Ensign. Deck four. With all due respect, sir, I don't think procedure would have mattered. There wasn't any way I could have possibly rescued them. Someday, Mr. Monroe, you may be called upon to do the impossible. Consider this to be your personal Kobayashi Maru. Red alert. All hands to battle stations. Computer, reroute turbo lift to the bridge. You play as Ensign Alexander Monroe, voiced by actor Reno Romano, the second-in-command of the Hazard Team, and meet a whole host of characters the story does a really solid job of investing you in. The loud-mouthed and memorable crewman Rick Beesman, played by Back to the Future's Tom Wilson, the meek science specialist crewman Chell, brought over from the Voyager series and played once more by actor Derek McGrath, demolition specialist Austin Chang, played by the Next Generation and Voyager guest star Alexander Enberg, and team sniper crewman Telsia Murphy, played by a Voyager finale guest star, Iris Barr. Several Hazard Team members are also former Maquis, like a lot of Voyager's crew, which is referenced in the story and actually adds to the sense of cohesion you feel through your character as a member of the core unit. The game also does an incredible job of making you feel an immense sense of loss on the situations where you actually do lose members of the Hazard Team. It gutted me when I was 13. The story for Elite Force went to some very interesting places, especially considering that it was a first-person shooter game, not the deepest kind of video game genre. In the Starship Graveyard, the story brings you into conflict with fellow trap species including Klingon, Malon, and Herogen adversaries, and even shows that these banded-together scavengers include humans from the Mirror Universe a hundred years in the past. You even walk the remains of a Terran Imperial Constitution-class ship faithfully recreated by the design teams at Raven. It was also a revelatory game because of how closely it recreated the sets of the actual Starship Voyager. An expansion pack released the following year for the game allowed you to walk around the ship freely in Virtual Voyager mode, 
and a very vibrant mod community on the PC side even saw additional levels and characters added to the mix from many different Trek series. In high school, which for me was in 2002-6, to six, by the way, I was actually a member of a website called Space Station K7, which featured a very talented team of fan developers who created a total conversion mod of Elite Force called The Argus Effect, a purported Season 4 premiere for the original series where you play as Captain Kirk aboard impeccably recreated original series environments. It only ever released one stage, but when I was hungry for Trek I wasn't getting elsewhere, I loved being an active user of Elite Force mods when I wasn't giving presentations for my English class about the threat of the Borg in full First Contact era Starfleet uniform. <clears throat> um, yeah, that's about how cool I was in high school. Meaning, not at all. A couple of years after Elite Force, Activision released a new game developed by Totally Games, which was very ambitious, graphically beautiful for the time, and probably the most simply immersive game the publisher released during their time with the license, Star Trek Bridge Commander. Taking place in the post-movies TNG era, Bridge Commander put the player in the center seat of a new starship, coordinating the actions of specific members of your crew at science, engineering, helm, and tactical stations, as well as delivering orders to your first officer. While it's not the first game to grasp this strict concept in Star Trek gaming history, that honor goes to 1994's aptly titled mouthful Star Trek Starfleet Academy Starship Bridge Simulator for the Super Nintendo and Sega 32X, it was the first one to do it at this level of immersive detail. After first taking command of the Galaxy-class starship Dauntless in the early going, the story quickly moves you to the USS Sovereign, the first of its class, with its sister ship being the Enterprise-E. With a memorable cast of characters, an appearance once and again from both Patrick Stewart as Captain Picard and Brent Spiner as Lieutenant Commander Data, and one of the most solidly addicting and again immersive Trek games ever created, Bridge Commander is next to Elite Force, another one of my all-time favorite Trek games. While the original Elite Force developers at Raven Software would move on to collaborate with LucasArts for some highly regarded Star Wars games, Activision enlisted now-defunct studio Ritual Entertainment to create a sequel to that game in 2003, Star Trek Elite Force 2, which took place sometime after Star Trek Nemesis. This time, after languishing at Starfleet Academy for a couple of years following Voyager's return to the Alpha Quadrant, the original team was plucked by none other than Captain Jean-Luc Picard to serve aboard the USS Enterprise-E. Since the game was post-Nemesis, the only primary TNG performer to reprise his role in the game was Patrick Stewart, but you also saw Tim Russ reprise his role as Tuvok to serve in Worfstead while he was on leave, and Dwight Schultz even reprised his role of Reginald Barkley, which was... Pretty cool. A little strange, though. The Enterprise definitely seemed a little empty of familiar personalities in that game. Uh, Lieutenant Monroe, this is Captain Jean-Luc Picard. I enjoyed observing your holodeck session. Very impressive. Yes, thank you, Monroe. And now we're very sorry, but the captain is on a very tight schedule. I'm sure the headmaster's reception can wait a few minutes. Lieutenant Monroe, I was wondering where you trained. The Delta Quadrant. I beg your pardon? I led the Hazard Team on Voyager, sir. Hazard Team? Yes, the Hazard Team was completely superfluous. Excuse me? Superfluous? Precisely. 
Federation space is so completely different from the lawless Delta Quadrant. My research clearly shows that Starfleet captains do not need hazard teams. I see. And are you a Starfleet captain? Well, no, but... The challenges we face on the outer edges of Federation space are not so different from what Voyager faced in the Delta Quadrant. I could use an elite force of tactical officers. But... Tell me, Lieutenant, do you ever think about going back on active duty? Every second of my life. I'll talk to your commanding officer. Perhaps I can arrange a transfer. Thank you, sir. Draw up a list of personnel and cadets you would like on a new hazard team. I'm sure Mr. Stemmons can make the arrangements. I, uh, well, precisely. The second Elite Force game was alright, but wasn't nearly as well received, or as embraced by modders, as the original game. Still, it was pretty fantastic being able to walk through the corridors of the latest Starship Enterprise, and I especially got a little thrill walking up to the door of the captain's ready room as now Lieutenant Alexander Monroe, ringing the door chime and hearing Patrick Stewart say, Come. Another memorable cast of new and returning supporting characters made EF2 generally solid, but not nearly as memorable as its predecessor. Then, well, then, we entered what I call a rather dark time on the front of Star Trek gaming. A time that wouldn't really start to wind down until 2017. As if the mid-2000s couldn't be enough of a crotch kick to Star Trek fans everywhere, Elite Force 2 would end up being the final franchise game released under the proven and capable hands of Activision. My how times have changed. <coughs> Destiny! <coughs> In 2004, a PS2 Starship battle game called Star Trek Shattered Universe was released, panned to hell and back by critics, and failing to make anything resembling a positive impression on either critics or gamers. One of the reasons behind this may be its publisher, who has a reputation of overwriting mediocrity, TDK Mediactive. If you want to hear more about another train wreck of a game they oversaw, listen to my issue of Comics on Consoles detailing a little gem from 2003 called Aquaman Battle for Atlantis. It's quite a story. After Shattered Universe crashed and burned, the license was briefly picked up by Bethesda Softworks, largely known today for their association with id Software and releases in the Doom and Wolfenstein franchises, as well as the modern iteration of the Fallout series. They announced an ambitious new project intended to celebrate the Trek franchise's then-upcoming 40th anniversary in the form of Star Trek Legacy, a game featuring a story that would unify every captain in the franchise all reprising their roles from each of their respective series. Basically an external view starship combat game, Legacy puts you in command of every major ship in the franchise from the NX-01 to the 1701E in a story that spans over a century of canon in the Trek universe. Cleverly bringing in classic Star Trek writer Dorothy Fontana to assist in crafting the tale, it ties together the Borg with a Vulcan scientist whose machinations span decades, bringing her into conflict with Jonathan Archer, played by Scott Bakula, in 2159 during the Earth-Romulan War, 
James T. Kirk in both 2270 and 2290, played by William Shatner, Patrick Stewart, Jean-Luc Picard in Command of the Stargazer and both the Enterprise D and E, as well as Avery Brooks's Commander Benjamin Sisko in Command of the Prototype Starship Defiant just before he took command of Deep Space Nine in, I believe, 2368. After the mission on the Defiant, the story then jumps to about a year after Nemesis in about 2380, and gives you the chance to play as both Picard on the Enterprise E and Kate Mulgrew's Admiral Catherine Janeway back aboard Voyager to take on the resurgent Borg threat. Story-wise, it was awesome seeing a game span that much time with all those actors back in their parts, even giving us a look at the canonically elusive Earth-Romulan War for the first time in a video game, and it made some pretty specific continuity references and callbacks to previous Borg encounters that Janeway and Voyager had in the Delta Quadrant. For its time in 2006, it was also a gorgeous game, but unfortunately, the developers at Mad Doc Software didn't end up making a title that played abundantly well. While there was a spike in that game's mod community for a time, Legacy ended up being a relatively obscure blip on the Star Trek gaming radar overall. Unfortunate, especially for those of us who pretty much enjoy it for what it is, but the story also lacked punch by featuring only external visuals of the ships themselves. Maybe some bridge-based cinematics would have helped matters a bit, but in the end, Legacy proved to be an ambitious, if short-sighted, game. And I doubt the publisher would have shelled out for likeness rights to all of the captains that participated. While 2007 saw the release of another real-time strategy game on the PS2 and Wii from Bethesda called Star Trek Conquest, it was largely dismissed and, at worst, seemed to violate canon in its representation of Starfleet as relatively trigger-happy phaser-firers. The back of the case even tells you... Diplomacy is dead! Age-old alliances forgotten and galactic borders ignored as each race battles for supremacy! Powerful fleets prowl the galaxy, establishing outposts, vanquishing indigenous and enemy fleets alike in the pursuit of the ultimate prize, the capture of all homeworlds and galactic domination. Um, yeah. No thanks. The next two years would be quiet on the front of video games, but in 2009... You may recall that something transformative in the realm of Star Trek came along, shaking up the status quo of the franchise considerably, and bringing with it a whole new wave of cultural relevance and popularity. Allegedly, according to a 2013 story found in The Wrap, one of the things that initially attracted J.J. Abrams and Bad Robot Entertainment to the Star Trek franchise, and also possibly the thing that ended up driving him to the Star Wars franchise, was its potential to be extremely lucrative on the front of consumer products and larger commercial tie-ins. So, naturally, the 2009 film had a video game accompaniment. It was far from typical, though. Star Trek DAC, developed by Naked Sky Entertainment and published by Paramount itself, was a deathmatch assault conquest arcade-style space shooter. 
operating from a top-down perspective a la the arcade classic Asteroids, DAC was rather simplistic, but it was a kind of fun distraction of a game. For Trek gamers and others like me, though, it was far from what the chief medical officer ordered. While Star Trek was reinvigorated in pop culture at large with the arrival of the 2009 film, the video game front was not as fortunate that summer. However, the following year, PC gamers were given one hell of a treat on the Star Trek gaming front. After initially announcing development in 2008, the Star Trek franchise came to the realm of the massively multiplayer online role-playing game, or MMORPG, in the form of Star Trek Online. Allowing players to create their own starship captain and taking place in the early 25th century, STO was a far better step for Trek gaming overall. Twenty-one years ago, the star of the Hobus system went supernova and sent a wave of devastation across the quadrant. I promised to save the Runabin homeworld. I failed. The planets Romulus and Remus were destroyed. Countless billions were killed. My home, my friends, my life, all are memories. Time does not stop for one man, and neither does history. Featuring Leonard Nimoy as the game's narrator and incorporating the reverberating events of the 2009 film on the Prime Trek universe, STO threw players into a new conflict with the Klingons while also recreating several iconic locales in the Trek universe for you to visit and play in. Take your ship to Earth's space dock and stroll the decks. Beam down to Starfleet Academy and walk the grounds, complete with a commemorative plaque dedicated to humpback whales George and Gracie. Just outside the Terran solar system, drift into the remains of the Battle of Wolf 359 and see debris fields from the 39 starships destroyed by Locutus and the Borg Cube with a memorial holographic Starfleet Delta at the center. Warp to the Bajor system and take a seat behind the station commander's desk at Deep Space Nine with an enshrined baseball sitting beside you just before you leave to take your ship through the wormhole. Become enthralled in a plot concerning planetless Romulan refugees, a resurgent Borg collective just now recovering after being crippled by Voyager as they returned home, a new onslaught by Species 8472, named in the game as the Undine, and even a time disturbance caused by the Guardian of Forever. You can even witness the launch of the Odyssey-class Enterprise F, visit the female changeling in a secret Federation prison. I could go on. Perhaps one of the best and most surprising parts about this game is that it's still going strong eight years later, with regular content and story updates featuring Trek actors like Michael Dorn, Tim Russ, Jerry Ryan, Renea Bergenois, LeVar Burton, Robert Picardo, J.G. Hertzler, Jeffrey Combs, Armin Shimmerman, Walter Koenig, and many, many more, all bringing their characters to life once more in the 25th century. In fact, the new DS9-based expansion, Victory is Life, just launched on PC. Of course, though, MMOs aren't for everyone, and naturally people were wondering if another Trek game would come along that would be a little more conventional and self-contained.
So naturally, Collective Jaws dropped when at E3 2011, we got our first look at an ambitious third-person shooter featuring Chris Pine's Captain Kirk and Zachary Quinto's Spock. It looked beautiful in its pre-alpha footage in the trailer shown at that event and seemed to perfectly evoke the world first shown in the 2009 film. Simply called Star Trek, it would be developed by Digital Extremes and published by Namco Bandai on the heels of the theatrical bow of Abrams' second franchise entry, Star Trek Into Darkness. Things were looking up. Until they weren't. The game was awful. Though it canonically anachronized the Gorn as interdimensional invaders, the one thing that the game did have going for it at large was its story and it was a wonderful reprisal of all the roles of the film's main cast. Taking place immediately before the events of Star Trek Into Darkness, the game's environmental designs and participation by all the current Kelvin timeline actors, unfortunately, did little to elevate what was ultimately a buggy, incomplete mess of an experience that was far too loose on the controls, a little too shoddy when you looked at it up close, and worst of all, repetitive and boring as all hell from a gameplay perspective. What's going on down there? The radiation from those binary stars is making communications difficult, but the station appears to be in some sort of distress. Hmm, check off readings. They're operating on emergency power and are struggling to maintain altitude. Cause? Unknown, sir. Captain, they have issued a request for immediate evacuation. Then let's help them out. Mr. Scott, prepare transporters. I wouldn't recommend it, sir. Those stars are giving off too much interference. Unless we achieve manual luck, we might fry those little guys. Then we'll get them out the old-fashioned way. Prepare my shuttle, meet me in the bay. Aye, aye, sir. Captain, in spite of your seemingly endless desire to stretch your legs, I must remind you that you are still a Starfleet captain. This is clearly a job that Mr. Scott and a few ensigns could handle. But then I'd miss all the fun. Sir, the more prudent choice would be to stay on the Enterprise and wait for a response to our hails. Oh, you're right. Lieutenant Uhura, any response to our hails? None, sir. No? Looks like I'm going. One of the more frustrating aspects of it is that the game's creative director, Stephen Sinclair of Digital Extremes, outright refused to recognize that the game was a disappointment in the face of every conceivable metric telling him otherwise, up to and including the expressed disappointment of J.J. Abrams himself. It had some good ideas, sure, choosing your playable character between Kirk and Spock, having a cooperative dynamic that relied on teamwork to get through certain stages, and again, a reasonably solid story on top of everything else. When the guns you fire are all generic, and the AI can't function very well when you're playing on your own, though, the luster wears off very quickly. While some behind-the-scenes shuffling at Paramount may be one of the ultimate culprits in the dev team and the publisher taking their eye off the proverbial ball for this game, speaking personally, I've encountered few games in my life as a gamer that were so utterly heartbreaking as 2013's Star Trek. If you're really curious about it, I'd recommend just absorbing the story and its stellar voice work on YouTube. I wouldn't really bother playing it. But it is pretty awesome that if you haven't played the game or even seen its story, there's an entirely unseen or rather unheard performance by Anton Yelkin as Pavel Chekhov. And that probably makes it worth checking out in and of itself. 
Still, it's kind of bizarre to think that the 2013 game was released now over five years ago. In that time frame, Star Trek gaming has been severely limited to offerings on mobile devices, a console port of Star Trek Online, and regular expansions for the MMO itself on both PC and console platforms. That is, until last May. Picking up the license is Assassin's Creed publisher Ubisoft, and now that gamers on both PC and home consoles have a VR headset that they're able to buy to bring virtual reality into their living rooms, one of the best, most natural transitions that any property can make finally did so. But how did it come out? Well, let's step off the turbo lift and take a seat in the big chair by looking at Star Trek Bridge Crew. Admittedly, the idea of home VR wasn't something that set my world on fire when I first started to see devices like the Oculus and the Vive coming down the pike. After all, buying into VR on any platform is a very expensive prospect, since on PC, you need a very powerful rig to be able to play the games at the necessary performance level. That translates to higher-end components, which certainly don't come cheap, on top of the actual cost of the headsets and motion controllers themselves. If you spend about a thousand US dollars on a powerful enough gaming PC, you'll need at least an additional 500 for an HTC Vive with their motion controllers, or an additional 400 if you go with the Oculus Rift. The PlayStation VR is generally more of an economical option, since PS4 consoles start at around 300 US dollars, with another 300 for the headset and another 100 for a pair of the now aging but serviceable PlayStation Move controllers. As is often the case with my life though, the two things that made me stand up and pay attention to the possibilities of playing games in virtual reality centered on two of my all-time favorite franchises. Batman, and Star Trek. See, we're a gaming household, we have every current-gen console, and since PSVR games would purportedly take advantage of the beefier PS4 Pro model that we had sitting under our TV, the presence of Batman in VR and the oncoming promise of Star Trek Bridge Crew, which I'd paid close attention to as soon as it was announced by Ubisoft, became too enticing to resist. You might say, resistance was futile. At the Electronics Entertainment Expo in 2016, during Ubisoft's media briefing, Bridge Crew made its first major case to the public through a video package that featured Star Trek performers past and present playing an early build of the game together. LeVar Burton, Jerry Ryan, and Carl Urban put on VR headsets to demonstrate just how collaborative a game Bridge Crew would be. And for the first time, I finally understood how the act of pushing a screen to your face and blocking out the sensory input of the outside world could actually be a social experience. The basic premise of Bridge Crew is that it features four players. One serves as the captain, one on the helm, one at tactical, and one in engineering, all coordinating their actions in order to solve specific combat scenarios or even participate in humanitarian and science-based missions. 
The captain is the sort of conductor that reads the orders from Starfleet Command and delegates tasks to the other three players in order to meet the goals of the mission at hand. Beyond the mechanics, of course, was the simple promise about this game that should appeal to any Star Trek fan, sitting on the bridge of a starship, with your main ship, the experimental USS Aegis, borrowing its setting and aesthetic from the movies of the Kelvin timeline, the game nonetheless feels like an authentic extension of the Star Trek experience that should be immediately intriguing to anyone who's dreamed of living in the franchise's world. After Rachel and I got married and had recently upgraded our smartphones, I took our old iPhones to a big box store, traded them in, and brought home a PSVR headset pretty much straight across. Her parents had graciously already gifted me a pair of Move controllers for Christmas, and the very first VR game I ever played was Rocksteady Studios' Batman Arkham VR. It quickly proved to me how promising and generally enthralling VR can be when the basic start screen popped up. I was looking out at Gotham City, and when I looked behind me, I saw the bat signal in all of its glory. As soon as I threw my first battering in the depths of the bat cave, I was hooked. Just about two months after I started to become a believer in home VR, Star Trek Bridge Crew was released on Oculus, Vive, and PSVR. As soon as I jumped in, it was immediately apparent that this game was going to be a very memorable experience. The first time you boot it up, you're standing before a vast asteroid and starfield before being placed in the main menu, which puts you in a shuttle riding from a starbase to the USS Aegis, which immediately familiarizes you with how exactly you'll soon interface with the controls on the bridge of the starship itself. After a training session on a holodeck of sorts, which familiarizes you with the duties at every station, you embark on a shakedown cruise, or at least that's what you think it is, until you encounter a little ship in distress along the Klingon border, the Kobayashi Maru. With even the intricate details of that test inspired by the same procedure from the Wrath of Khan in all of the right places, you then begin the game's campaign in earnest, which you can do either by yourself in the captain's chair with an AI crew, or with a full complement of fellow players filling out all four positions that you can find from either your friends list or randomly online. The game's story takes place in the Kelvin timeline, and charges the USS Aegis with exploring an uncharted section of space known as the Trench. The Federation Council and the remains of the Vulcan population after the planet's destruction feel that the Trench could potentially be the site of a planet suitable to establish a new Vulcan colony, so that the culture can begin to rebuild after the devastation caused by Nero in the 2009 film. Time-wise, the setting appears to be in 2258, so it takes place right after Nero's defeat by the crew of the Enterprise. In addition to the campaign mode, you can also play a series of different missions oriented around combat, science, or hostage situations. A good crew is often defined most by the flow and ease of communication, the ability to delegate tasks and not try and take over the room, deference to the player in the center seat, but also not being afraid to speak up if you notice indecisiveness or inaction, particularly if a path forward is clear to you in a tense situation. The game really does effectively get to the forefront of the human element of Star Trek, while also being extremely detail-oriented, and again, that magic word, immersive. 
While playing in the Kelvin timeline is nice, the game absolutely had room to feel more genuine to Star Trek's lineage, and thankfully the developers at Red Storm agreed. One of the ships you can play on in the collection of non-campaign missions is the original USS Enterprise, as it appeared during the run of the original series. The Enterprise, however, does take a degree of familiarity with the game, since the consoles are laid out entirely differently from aboard the Aegis, especially due to the lack of screens and hollow imaging at helm, tactical, and in the captain's chair. While the base game itself has a tendency to get repetitive, the true diversity of experiences comes from the very different kinds of people you'll find yourself playing with over the course of your time with the game. Even if certain tasks become repetitious, that doesn't mean that the people you take on those tasks with will be at all similar from session to session. But of course, this past month, Redstorm introduced a new $15 downloadable content pack to Bridge Crew, opening up more authenticity to the Star Trek universe, while also bringing to life a very Trek-centric nightmare scenario for you and your crew to play. Not just even to play, but to struggle through. Captain, we've been detected. I've got a new contact. Hostile. Aye, targeting. We are the board. Lower your shields and surrender your ship. Resistance is futile. Added in the new Next Generation DLC pack is the ability to play on the bridge of the legendary USS Enterprise D, along with new adversaries for you to take on in ongoing voyages, the Romulans. Also added, though, is a mode called Borg Resistance, which charges you to try and take on a giant Borg cube with your crew, making it shut down for repairs so you can warp to different sectors in order to find pieces of a weapon to use to shut the cube down for good. It really puts an entire crew's problem-solving skills to the ultimate test. It's also complicated by the presence of a planet killer, the eponymous device in the original series episode, The Doomsday Machine. The presence of the Planet Killer complicates the ability for the crew to take on the Borg in specific sectors. The mode, though, also allows some pretty unique scenarios for crews to get creative in order to stop the Borg's onslaught. All in all, the Next Generation DLC pack is how you correctly take advantage of the concept of post-launch support. A modest price tag and even more immersion in the world of Star Trek makes it a no-brainer. However, Bridge Crew as a whole, by virtue of its immersion, its attention to detail, its representation of now three different eras of Trek canon, and its reliance on your team, makes it one of the best Star Trek games you can play, bar none. Technology available for home gamers has finally caught up to the potential of the concept of sitting on the bridge of a starship, making for one of the best VR games available, in addition to being one of the best, most representative Star Trek games in years. A recent update also made it available now for players who don't even own a VR headset, with the same kind of crossplay now open to PlayStation and PC players, even if you just want to play on your TV with a traditional controller. So, debrief listeners, I'd love to have a chance to play with you. Feel free to reach out and join myself and co-host Cicero Holmes to play on the bridge of a starship, and we'll most definitely have some fun with it. Bottom line, Star Trek Bridge Crew feels like both the culmination of Star Trek gaming's history up until this point, which hopefully you know more about now, as well as an accessible, social, and solid gaming experience all on its own. Because of all those factors, 
It comes highly recommended. That's going to do it for episode 23 of Discovery Debrief. A little detour before we begin our series on each of our panelists' all-time favorite episodes in the entire franchise. If you enjoyed this look at the history of Star Trek and video games, please consider checking out my other podcast, Comics on Consoles, which deals with video games based on the iconic characters of comic books. Like I said at the top of the show, we just came out this past April with an episode dedicated to 2008's Iron Man game, while also diving into that character's larger gaming history, and we're aiming to bring an episode dedicated to the year 2000's Spider-Man game later this summer. Give the show a listen, and let me know what you think, by checking out comicsonconsoles.com. As for Debrief, be on the lookout at the end of June for the first episode in our favorite series, which begins with mine. The original series, The City on the Edge of Forever, originally written by sci-fi icon Harlan Ellison. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff that merits discussion with this topic, and we can't wait to do exactly that with the full strength of our complete panel. If you enjoyed this episode of Discovery Debrief, please like and follow us on our social media channels. Also, if you'd be so kind, we'd also appreciate it if you wrote a review for the show on iTunes or Facebook. It only takes a minute, and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it's posted. If you have any questions, you can follow the show on Twitter at DSC Debrief, where you can also find mine and the rest of our panelists' individual Twitter handles, and feel free to send us questions through Twitter, our Facebook-like page, or by emailing us at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. Please be sure to set your courses for this feed for future episodes. And keep your eyes on our social media channels for future plans, and hopefully we'll have more surprises for you coming up very soon, especially if you're a longtime fan of the Star Trek franchise, including a possible episode with a well-known member of Star Trek Productions during the Rick Berman era. Be sure to keep your eyes out, for news on that front. As always, though, until we meet again, please, go boldly, my friends. Mm -hmm.